If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. In 1993, a Yale surgeon and professor of medicine named Sherwin Newland published a best-selling book called How We Die. The point of the book was to show the reader the method of modern dying, what death looked like typically in modern America. Each chapter takes up six of the most common ways people die and then explains the pathway of death and what you can expect. And what is shocking is not the content, but the reason why this was written. Why was this book necessary? I believe because in our world today, death is foreign. The book reads like a guide to a place that most people have never considered going to. Like a guidebook for a city you would visit someday, the book walks you through what death looks like. His book is necessary because for most of us, death is really a foreign country that we don't ever want to visit. It belongs to another world altogether. It's not just a place we've never been, it's a process that we've never contemplated. And above all, it is a reality that we don't want to consider. And the reason I believe is because of modern medicine. Modern medicine in the last hundred years has made our lives longer and far more comfortable. But it's also opened up new avenues to convince ourselves that we will never die. Imagine with me, you're living in the late 1600s in Andover, Massachusetts. The average married couple in those years would give birth to nine children, but three of those nine children would die before they would reach the age of 21. You would bury one in three children. Take, for example, New England minister Cotton Mather, one of the most prominent men of his time. He and his wife had 14 children. Seven of those children died as infants soon after they were born. Another child died at two years old. Of the six who survived to adulthood, five would die in their 20s. Only one child survived Cotton Mather, just one. And he had enough financial resources for the best medical care of his time. But he still buried 13 of the 14 children they had. So if you were to live in that time when you got married during that period, you would expect to bury your children. When your child had a fever, you weren't annoyed that they would miss school or it would mess up your day. You were worried that they wouldn't recover at all. And whatever illness they had could mean death for everyone else in your household. By the end of the 18th century, four out of five people died before reaching the age of 70, with the life expectancy hovering around the age 30. But today, life expectancy is nearly 80 years old on average. We're living much longer today. But not just longer, we're living better. If you've been watching the news, they're getting ready to release a vaccine for COVID. In less than a year, a vaccine released worldwide. Uh, that's astounding to think through. Modern medicine has continued to leap forward. But all these medical marvels have come to us with a profound, often unnoticed side effect. One that just sits under the surface, barely noticeable, it's that we forget about death. We will all die. 
The reality of death has been pushed to the margins of our experiences. Every one of us will die, but many of us don't want to think about that. And with every new year, medicine pushes further and farther away from believing that death is a reality, that death is a real thing, that it's coming for us. And in the midst of it, we forget that people don't die because medicine failed them. People die because they're human. Death is a reality for us. And it's a reality in the passage here in Luke 7 that we're going to talk about. Because death's door is always ajar. What matters most is what's on the other side of the door. There are two stories that revolve around death in the passage this morning. And and the parallels linking the two miracles are significant. In each story, we see a person in the grip of grief and a beloved person in the grip of death. And there's something for us to consider here in Luke 7 this, this morning. So, Here's the big idea. This is a sentence I want you to capture. So if you write down anything this morning, write this down. The authority and power of Jesus stretches across the world into each of our lives and even into the grave. The authority and power of Jesus stretches across the world and into each of our lives and even into the grave. So I have two points that I want to cover as we walk through this passage this morning. First, the unexpected faith Second, unexpected power. So let's look here. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at a point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. As we get to chapter 7, it's... It's on the heels of Jesus finishing the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. And several stories appear where faith and questions about Jesus' identity come to the surface here in chapter 7 and following. There's a story about the centurion's faith that I just read, followed by two stories about who Jesus is and what power he has in verses 11 through 35, followed by two more pictures of faith in action that that ends there in chapter 8, verse 3. The last two stories are about women, which shows that Jesus' work has no gender gap. And the first story that I just read is about a Gentile. So there's no racial gap either in Jesus' ministry. He comes for all. And I found it interesting, in in both these stories, uh, they have roots from similar stories in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, with Naaman being healed by, and, and then Elijah healing the widow's son. So perhaps today at the service you go home and look up those two stories in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll be blessed to see those similarities in God's word. Luke 
turns first, though, in these first 10 verses about the centurion and his servant, and this narrative is less concerned about the miracle itself than with the faith of the man who requests Jesus' aid. It's a very unexpected faith, as we'll see. And we'll see that Jesus is not just Lord of the Jews, but he's Lord of the Gentiles also. Romans were notorious as the cruelest slave owners in history. The life of a slave in the first century could be unimaginable. Slaves were branded, mutilated, sexually abused, and worst of all, killed. They had no rights to speak of and were at the mercy of their owners. They were viewed as disposable. But none of this seems to be true of this centurion and his slave. A centurion was a commander of the Roman unit, usually 100 men, called a sentry, hence we get the name centurion. And here we have an uncircumcised Gentile in the employ of a hostile oppressor, and he decides to enlist Jewish leaders in his community to plead his case before Jesus. And this centurion understands authority. He, he brings in help to go get Jesus to ask him to come and heal his beloved servant. And the word used for healing comes from a group of words for salvation, something that we're going to see over and again in these next chapters. And although the word heal is a proper translation, the word's etymology describes the situation. And the thought that Luke is trying to convey to us is that the centurion is asking Jesus to safely carry his servant through his dangerous ordeal. Luke says the centurion views his servant differently. He says it's highly valued by him. This could mean that he's a very useful servant, but it also means that he was viewed as precious in the sense that he was loved by his master. The elders come to Jesus because they believe this guy, the centurion, has earned the right for a hearing. He's worthy, they say. And they're only thinking in terms of merit. He had done so much for them. He had sacrificed and helped build the synagogue for the Jews. And if anyone's worthy, this guy is worthy, they're saying. But do you see the response that I read from the centurion? He says in verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my, my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion's hesitation in approaching Jesus may have been because of his concern for his slave as well as him being a Gentile. Everyone else thought he was worthy, but he sees himself differently. And by the grace of God, the centurion saw himself as he really was. He knew he wasn't worthy at all, at least not compared to Jesus. He, he wasn't even worthy to be under the same house as Jesus. Don't we see the same response from Peter chapters earlier? He himself was unworthy, and what made him unworthy was the worthiness of Jesus. See, the elders here are thinking of terms in terms of goodness, being good and worthy is what matters most. Perhaps you feel the same way this morning. I mean, you come to church when you're able, you give, you serve others, you're an upstanding citizen, so God has to answer your prayers since you're good and all. Perhaps you even think that about life after death, that if you do enough good, if you act good enough, you'll be entitled to heaven hoping that the good will outweigh the bad. And in our pride, we believe we can be good enough for God. And friend, I don't want you to be misguided this morning, but your goodness will not garner you entry into heaven. No matter how convinced of it you are, God will shut you out of eternity forever. 
There is no human that is worthy. Your good personality, your good sensibilities, your good works will do nothing to convince God that he should accept you. And the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament says that our works are like filthy rags in God's sight. They're dirty and unable to cover us. Instead, we need a different covering. We need a rescue. We need someone else's good works because our good works are not good enough. We need Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. This centurion's servant is on the brink of death and he knows of only one person to turn to, Jesus Christ. Friend, you too are on the brink of death. Your good history, your Christian mom and dad won't save you. Your attendance or service at church won't save you. You need Christ. You need his saving work on the cross and you need his resurrection. So I encourage you, I implore you to turn to Christ this morning. Turn from yourself and trust in him. The centurion explains himself even more in verse eight. He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. Surely, he says, if, if he, as a member of the government's army, is, is, is obeyed, so also the spiritual forces that are subject to Jesus will obey his word also. See, he understands in his way that Jesus' authority, which is astounding. Jesus responds, he marveled at him. Here was a man who stood before generals, maybe even the emperor of Rome, who, who knew somehow that in Christ he was dealing with one who exercised complete lordship. And Jesus is marveling at his faith. He's amazed. Now we've have regularly seen the people that come in contact with Jesus throughout Luke's gospel are the ones who are always amazed. And that's the reason the series has amazing in the title. But this is the only time that this phrase is used in the Gospels in the positive by Jesus. The other time Jesus is said to be marveling is when he's amazed by the unbelief of the Nazarenes. But here, Jesus is positively shocked. Humility mixed with deep faith describes what Jesus praises here. And then the statement by Jesus here at the end of verse 9, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. See, this, this, that statement marks the climax of the story rather than the healing, which is mentioned almost as an afterthought. The centurion's faith and humility is what Christ centers on. The Jewish leaders came to Jesus believing that Jesus could perform a miracle and they expected him to do it because of the centurion's good works. He, he's a good guy. And I believe he was. He, he wanted to serve the Jewish people. But they thought Jesus should heal him because he earned it. They commended his work. But what does, what does Jesus commend here? He commends his faith. You know, there are unbelievers who are more firmly believing that Jesus is Lord of all than some believers with a profession. There are some good, even within the evil forces of our world. There are those who are striving to do good, who are stuck in bad systems. 
And this man tried to do good for God's people, and he seems to have, have more faith than the religious leaders at that time. And what was impressed upon my heart this week and that we can learn from is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. That's why Luke is writing this for us to understand. Who is it in your life that you've given up on? That you've lost all hope that they'll come around, that they'll repent, that they'll turn to Christ in faith? Who is it that you should be regularly praying for and witnessing to, but you've convinced yourself that they are too far gone? I know some seated here and watching online have spouses, parents, siblings, and children. Who is it for you? See, on a human level, there, there should have been no possible way for this centurion to have access to Jesus and for Jesus to answer. But he does. And I don't believe this story shows salvation for the centurion, but it shows how far God will go to the least of these to the outsiders, to the world, to show compassion and grace. The centurion's hope is based on the goodness and power of Jesus, not on his own goodness and his own power. So he knows himself to be unworthy. But he doesn't need to be worthy to seek Christ's help. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel, isn't it? You and I come unworthy to Christ. We have no merit in and of ourselves. We can only come because of the merit of Jesus Christ. And God gives grace to the humble. He's opposing the proud. Pride has devastating effects to our lives. It, it destroys churches and homes and countries. And one can be, become so full of a self-importance that even before he knows it, his personality is engulfed by the kind of pride that God hates and works to bring down. Friend, is, is pride keeping Christ away from your home? Away from your life? Pride refuses to be taught, but humility refuses not to be. Humility is one of the strongest evidences of the indwelling spirit of God. So run from pride, friends. Embrace humility in your life. One more example I want to highlight here before we get to the next story. We need to grow in our ability to show kindness to everyone of whom we have contact with. We need to be ready to help when there's need. We need to have a heart ready to, to love those that God has brought into our path. As Christians, we need to be ready to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I believe that's a, a lost art in our culture today. We are too quick to concern ourselves with ourselves. And that's shameful for us as Christians. And one of the ways people recognize a relationship with Christ is that we make it beautiful before men. And kindness is the grace that everyone can understand. Showing kindness. And we see it clearly in these 10 verses. Friends, a, a kind person will seldom be without friends. So we find an unexpected faith here with a centurion. Second, we have an unexpected power. 
I don't know when it first hit me, but I notice it every time now when uh, my wife and I go on vacation, especially when we go to a hotel. For years, when Katie and I have traveled with kids or without kids, we look forward to that time away. I don't know about you, but like 2020 has been really long, so I'm looking forward to the next vacation. And you get excited, right? You pack and you plan for the time you're living for and looking forward to that vacation, that time away. And each time you pull up to the hotel where you're staying, you grab all your stuff. And if you have kids, it just gets bigger and there's more stuff. And you head to the elevator, to your room. And who do you usually pass? Well, I usually pass people checking out, right? Their vacation's over when mine's beginning. And it always hits me. I'm a pessimist, I guess. It always hits me. I think that's going to be me in a few days. I've looked forward to this for months. But we're going to be packing up and heading home. And sometimes it nags at me during vacation. This is going to be over soon. When we come to verse 11, and we come to a woman who's experiencing this, the highs and lows of life with her family have now ended. What was once promising and hopeful is gone. Once married and with a son, she's now by herself. And Jesus shows up. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. When we come to this section, we find here is the way of life meets the way of death. Jesus leaves and travels to to Nain. It's a small and otherwise insignificant town located 25 miles south of Capernaum. And according to to custom of that time, the dead were buried outside of the city, usually at twilight on the same day that they had died. When we come to verse 11, we find a widow, meaning she's already buried her husband, and now she's about to bury her son. And all of her hopes and all of her security had died with her son. The life that she had hoped for, the hope for grandkids and family meals and holidays together was taken from her with the death of her son. And there's not an item in this whole story which is not full of misery. And we need to remind ourselves that this misery was brought into our world by sin. Martin Luther wisely said, When you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin and the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must think of the cause by which a man is brought to death and without, without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible, namely sin and the wrath of God and account of sin. God didn't create this misery. When he created things, he said it was very good. Sin entered the world when Adam fell into sin. 
And let us not forget that the world around us is full of sorrow and sickness and pain and weakness and poverty. It surrounds us everywhere. We cannot escape it. There are families all around us whose lives are full of weeping and mourning and woe. And where did it come from? Sin. So how much we should hate sin. Instead of loving sin and holding to it and playing with it and excusing it and ignoring it, we ought to hate it with a deadly hatred. Sin is the great murderer and thief and plague and nuisance in our world. And friends, we cannot make any peace with sin, either in our members or in our words. We need to engage in a ceaseless warfare against sin. Don't waste any of your time defending your sin. It deserves no defense. It deserves to be brought into the light and destroyed. And sin is the culprit of death. Jesus and his disciples make their way to Nain and they come to the, to the gate of the town and they see the funeral service happening. And Jesus observes the processional, but he focuses on one person, the grieving mother. She is what captivates his heart, what, what, moves, what he moves toward with compassion. And then he tells her not to weep. At first reading it, it seems maybe insensitive to say to a widow and someone who just lost her son, why is Jesus being so cold-hearted to her? Is it insensitive to say that if you have the power to stop the weeping? Is it cold-hearted to talk this way if you have the ability to raise the dead and you know that you're going to do it? And then Jesus does something here that's unheard of. He, he stops the crowd marching and weeping during the processional and he touches the beer. The term beer is only used here in the New Testament. It refers to a plank. It's an open coffin. And Jesus steps out to touch the coffin. And in the ancient world, and particularly in Jewish culture, it was considered unlawful from the viewpoint of the ceremony to touch a corpse or even the coffin. To come in contact with a dead body was to risk personal defilement that would require a rigorous procedure of ritual cleansing. And here, Jesus boldly does it. This man was dead. And death is a gruesome thing. It's never pleasant. His body was starting to decompose. And Jesus speaks to him. The grieving had come to bury their dead, but the funeral meets Jesus, and death has to stop in its tracks. See, everyone had to follow the procession, but Jesus had the authority and the power to bring the whole thing to a halt. It's as if Jesus says, death, you've come this far, but you won't go any farther. Jesus came to halt the procession to the grave. And that's why he came to earth. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He came to stop death. And the point of the incarnation with Jesus was not for Jesus to be a tourist in his creation that he created. To drive around and see what it was like on earth. Ooh, that's pretty. That's nice. We did a good job there, God. No, he came to change things. 
He came as a revolutionary. He came to make things new. And he shows deep empathy here, but he didn't just come to show empathy. He came to reverse death. And Jesus does a striking thing. He speaks to him and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. This is a strange verse, right? It's absurd. Let me read it again. The dead man sat up and began to speak. What nonsense in that phrase. The dead man sat up. Dead people don't sit up. Dead people don't speak. If he sits up, he's not dead, right? It's gibberish unless we're prepared to abandon the idea that's second nature to us. And to say with Christ, death is neither an unstoppable force nor an immovable object. It's simply the last enemy to overcome. Death is swallowed up in victory with Jesus. Death has no power over him. Jesus spoke to a body wrapped in the prison of death sentence. He speaks to a cold corpse and at once it becomes a living person. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the heart, the lungs, the brain, the senses again resume their work and the son begins to speak. Friends, that's how you stop a funeral. That's how you stop weeping. That's how you begin to reverse death. Jesus came to earth to give you new spiritual life because the Bible says that we're all spiritually dead. And maybe you don't feel very dead today. Instead, you feel very full of life and you have no fear of death. And perhaps you don't realize how much you need God right now. And God in his tender providence has brought maybe a, an ailment physically or emotionally that will cause you to stop and consider your life. That's Jesus' compassion for you. He came to halt the procession of your life to hell, to call you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And Jesus' heart of compassion is seen so clearly in both of these passages. And I want you to this sink in to your minds this morning. Our Lord Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his heart is still compassionate as when he was in this story and this day. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong as it was that day. His compassion is still present in our lives. There is no friend or comforter who can be compared to Jesus Christ. In all of our days of darkness and pain and separation, when we turn to the consolation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he will never fail us. He will never disappoint us. He will never refuse to take interest in your sorrows. He lives now in heaven, still a divine human with flesh and bones, still showing unending compassion to us as he did on that day to that widow at that gate in Nain. And he lives to receive all of us who labor and are heavy laden. We only need to come to him. And Ren, don't worry about cleaning yourself up. Just come to him. He knows you deep down inside and he's not disgusted. He isn't turned away in spite.
He is our friend, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and he welcomes you. You know, Jesus' resurrection of this man required supernatural power, power over the visible and the invisible, over the body and the soul, over life and death. This is not simply uh, done to make a spectacular display of display of Jesus' power, but a, an expression of Jesus' compassion for people. And how do the people respond? How, how would you respond? Verse 16, fear sees them all. Yep. I would have responded that way. And they do something interesting. They glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. The rescuer that they have waited for has come. God has visited his people. We, we haven't heard that language since chapter one when Zechariah was praising God for his work. And it harkens back to Elisha in 2 Kings 4 because it had been a thousand years since anyone in Israel had witnessed this kind of miracle. But the truth that we sing about every Christmas is what they say that day, that God has visited his people. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in each of these stories, we see the proof that the Prince of Peace is stronger than the Prince of this world, the Prince of Death. Even though death, the last enemy of us all, is strong, it's not stronger than the friend of sinners, Jesus. He is our mighty God, and he proves himself here in Luke 7. And raising the dead put the fear of God into them in a good way. But ultimately, as we will find out in Luke's gospel, the news spreads, but they only want to use Jesus. Friend, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. And when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus often seem detached from our lives. If you want to see the beauty of Jesus, you must first look carefully and honestly at death. And you must honestly consider your own impending death. And that's where I began this morning. The imminent ending of all of our lives. The Heidelberg Catechism opens with a clear and profound question. It says, what is your comfort in life and death? And I love the simplicity of this question and the assumption underneath it. The Gettys have a worship song about this and we're gonna sing it after the new year, I promise. But what it's saying is that any comfort in this life must also provide comfort in death. If the object of your hope can't stand up to death's onslaught, it can't offer you true hope in life either. There are many things that we have hope in throughout our life, things that we look towards for meaning and purpose, things we accomplish or acquire, pleasures that we enjoy, people we love, and we trust in these things to deliver and hope that they will endure. But one by one, they fade away. And for us to know true hope, we need something we can lock into. 
We need a living and breathing, resurrected person. We don't need an ideal. We need Jesus. And this story points directly to death and says, you will not win. Christ has conquered the grave. And friends, if you're in Christ, so will you. Everything we enjoy in this life, our family, our health, our careers, our church, it's all just an appetizer for the feast that is yet to come. You know what an appetizer is, right? It isn't meant to satisfy someone who is really hungry. Now, don't raise your hands, but I know you've been there. You've been invited over a friend's house, and you're expecting a meal, and all you get is finger foods and fruit, right? It's kind of disappointing. Cheese and crackers and fruits, you won't, you won't fully enjoy the quality of the food because you only notice that it's not enough. But an appetizer can be incredibly delightful when you know the fine and fulfilling main course is on the way. And in that case, at the appetizer, you can savor every bite for what it, for what it is, not in, not in fear, disappointed of what isn't. If it's delicious, you'll be sorry to reach the end, but you'll know the appetizer has done its job because it's whet your appetite for what's still to come. And Jesus' death and resurrection have purchased freedom to enjoy what you know you're going to lose because one day you will gain what you've been longing for. So even as we look to the future and death, we can still enjoy that vacation. It's an appetizer. And you should enjoy your kids and your grandkids while they're small and needy. And enjoy your teens when they're tired and moody. And you can enjoy your work and your friendships and your health you have in your body. And enjoy your marriage and your life together. These things won't last. They will fade away but they're only an appetizer. We have the real meal before us. And Jesus always saves the best wine for last. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to have the Bible in my own language and so readily available to me. And we are sorry we don't love it like we should and read it enough. Because in it we find life and we find hope and we find joy. And as we've looked at this morning, we praise you for your unending compassion towards us, especially sending your son for us wayward people. Thank you for your grace when we feel like we fall away. You actually hold us fast to yourself. And it's astounding to think, God, that you delight in us of all people, that you sing over us, you hold us to yourself when you bring us safely home one day. Father, we ask that you would help us to love you faithfully, to serve you joyfully, and to wait for you patiently. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.